Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about some new improvements in the uh, interactions between our unhoused neighbors and LA sanitation and specifically the removal of LAPD from that equation, which is fantastic. Uh, also going to give you a couple of quick updates relating to LAPD and disproportionate searches within every single region that LAPD operates outside of Topanga. Um, some great news relating to housing, uh, but it's also been tempered with uh, some shitty moves by landlords across Los Angeles. Uh, a crazy scandal that's developing out of the assessor's office. A uh, bunch of stuff going on at City Hall right now. Uh, literally some updates from this morning. And uh, along with a, a, a quick uh, note on a, a recently passed law that largely went unnoticed relating to 2020 uh, elections, which are going to be uh, a lot of fun. So, yeah. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going all right. Obviously, the story du jour is the uh, Saddle Ridge fire up in yes. the valley up around uh, Aliso Canyon, Porter Ranch, uh, Granada Hills, and Silmar, which is a surprisingly large amount of territory for a fire to be covering in this short amount of time because it just broke out last night. Uh, there's also a smaller sandalwood fire that was sparked, I believe, by a uh, uh, sanitation vehicle that picked up some flaming garbage and then had to dump it. Um, I'm not really clear on that one. I'm, I've you know just seen wow. that repeated several times. I'm not sure what it means. Uh, but as far as the Saddle Ridge fire goes, uh, about 25,000 homes have been evacuated from Porter Ranch uh, to uh, Granada Hills and parts of yeah, Silmar. Yeah, Porter Ranch was evacuated, yeah. right? Uh, because of its proximity to Aliso Canyon, which is now apparently burning, Oof. which is the natural gas storage facility. Um from what LAFD and the folks who own the natural gas storage facility say, it's safe from this kind of fire. Like the mountain full of, of natural gas is not going to explode, uh, well, but good. we hope. Um, but at this <laughs> point, um, it's zero percent contained and at forty seven hundred acres and growing, Jesus, uh, and being so pushed crazy. to the west by Santa Ana winds, uh, which is a little bit scary because to the north and to the east there isn't a whole lot. There's the Angeles National Forest, and there's a lot more kind of rural uh, sort of ranch land area. To the south and to the west is a heck of a lot more people in the San Fernando Valley, um, and then out towards Agora Hills and Malibu. Um, and as you get kind of farther to the west, um, you see Simi Valley and parts of Malibu that that burned in fires recently in the last few years. Uh, check with the L.A. Fire Department for uh, information as to where to stay um, as far as evacuation centers. Uh, right now, the Lanark Recreation Center, the Silmar Recreation Center, the Northridge Recreation Center, the Granada Hills Recreation Center, and the Mason Park uh, facilities are all open for people and small pets. If you have large animals, you can go to Hanson Dam or you can go to Pierce College. Um, and there are a lot of horse properties and stuff like that up there. So if you're in the North Valley or know people that are up there, hopefully they stay safe. Don't forget to check on your neighbors. And this also comes right on the heels of SoCal Edison announcing preventative power shutoffs for large parts of the Valley and Burbank yeah. and other parts of the OC um, and parts of Riverside County and San Bernardino County uh, and parts of Ventura County, possibly. Uh, meanwhile, PG&E has cut off power to around 800,000 homes, about 1.2 million people, I want to say, in the Bay Area uh, in yep. a shockingly classist move where uh, Facebook and Instagram and all of the tech giants that are in San Francisco proper are safe from the the shutoffs. Meanwhile, more working class and rural communities 
uh, have been faced yep. with uh, very drastic power cuts. Uh, here in mm-hmm. L.A., just as one more, like, to touch back on the, the fire in Silmar, uh, 52-year-old man passed away this morning uh, around midnight or so when the fa- when the power ca- when the power was cut uh, because he relies on oxygen to live and suffered a fatal heart attack. So there's at least one fatality from the power cuts in the state of California. Uh, no fatalities from the fire itself. Uh, but this is a fast-developing situation. I'm sure we'll have to be covering it again. The fire Absolutely. department is saying it's going to be several days before we actually get containment on this fire, uh, and hopefully the winds die down and they're able to get a handle on it because... This could be a lot of people and property that are put at risk. So uh, be safe out there. And remember, our fire season uh, now stretches all 12 months of the year. And the last, I think the five most destructive fires in the last couple of years all started in October or November, uh, which is not par for the course, but is quickly becoming the the new normal, which I guess is now just the normal normal. Yeah, this it's absolutely insane. Uh, We will definitely be covering this in more detail next week. I mean, hopefully this fire will be out by then. Um, it's like you said, it last, it started last night and it has already forced the evacuation of, uh, tens of thousands of people from their homes. Uh, I was seeing reports on the news this morning about, uh, all these families with their pets taking shelter in these rec centers and in gymnasiums at schools. It's absolutely insane that this is, this is very quickly, as you said, becoming our new normal and, uh, our, our, our thoughts go out to everybody who's affected by this. And, uh, I'm hoping, hoping that this, the, the one man who, uh, died due to a heart attack from losing his power supply for his oxygen is the only person who, uh, passes away as a result of this. But my hunch is that we will be getting word of more fatalities associated with the fires and with the, uh, the rolling power cuts, uh, as this situation develops. I mean, it's something like mo- I think more than half of the counties uh, in the northern portion of the state are are basically experiencing these rolling blackouts at this point. We knew uh, that yeah. this was coming, but it's, it's of just the 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 how widespread and how disproportionately this is impacting folks who live in rural or poorer communities is absolutely astounding. Uh, looking at a map of how, how the impacts are rolling out in San Francisco proper, it's the, the peninsula of San Francisco is completely untouched, which is great because there are tons of people who are you know, elderly and living in their, in their uh, rent-controlled homes in the city, and they would be massively impacted if they lost their power. But uh, it, it's still pretty shocking to see uh, how the city is, is completely protected from that while all of the poorer surrounding areas like the East Bay and South uh, and up north of the city of San Francisco are all experiencing these power cuts. So, yep, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye on this. Um, yeah, geez, it's just, it's shocking. And, and it's, it's the, the fact that this stuff, 60 mile an hour winds pushing these embers, freeways can't stop it, nothing can stop it. You can't put a... You can't put in a fire block if the fire can just jump across a freeway like the five. Like that's you can't. There's there's no way to stop these fires once they get going. We just need to, you know, take a real meaningful approach to preventing them from happening in the first place. That's the only way we're going to be able to survive these these fires as they move forward. Well, and it's also a matter of the fires now burn hotter than they used to, which yeah, means that it's it's more likely that they'll cause spontaneous combustion just within the area, because um, fires in the state of California, wildland interface fires used to burn at like twelve hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Now they're burning at more than two thousand degrees Fahrenheit, and yeah. that you know that heat just gets into everything and tinder and small brush, 
uh, can literally just ignite when exposed to enough heat. It doesn't even have to be uh, near the flame. It can literally just be heated to the point where it reaches its combustion temperature, and then it goes from there. So uh, this is all really scary stuff. Um, But everyone that's in L.A., stay safe, and uh, don't forget to reach out to LAFD and the Red Cross should you need assistance. Um, But, yeah, let's go ahead and move on to more of the the regular news of the day. Um, We'll talk about the Care and Care Plus changes, and this is an interesting one because uh, the city of Los Angeles and LAPD have been talking about clearing out the Hanson Dam area where they held a press conference earlier today about the Silmar fire uh, because there are a couple of large encampments over there. Um, and so the the kind of intersection between LA's housing crisis and our insane wildfires is becoming very apparent in what's going on in the Valley. Um, and we'll have to see how that's affected by the changes that LASA is rolling out. For sure. So the uh, effective October 1st, the city of Los Angeles is taking a new approach to ensuring the health, safety, and respect of our unhoused brothers and sisters, specifically pertaining to cleanups or what have been colloquially referred to as sweeps. And so this is the Care and Care Plus project. Uh, I forget exactly what the acronyms stand for, but uh, it's they just keep coming up with new acronyms. This is replacing like uh, the, I believe Hope they're replacing teams. the Hope teams and all that, which it's crazy acronyms. But anyway, the main change is worth noting here. Uh, LAPD is no longer going to be allowed to be physically present during any of the scheduled activities um, uh, that are designated on un- a un- uh, designated unit. Sorry. LAPD is no longer going to be allowed to be physically present during the scheduled care and care plus activities. Uh, there is going to be a designated unit assigned to LASA and LA sanitation uh, with their team members able to radio in uh, only in the case of an emergency. So the LASA team member must actually authorize the police to be present uh, on the scene, which this really goes back to like we we've been hearing in uh, activist circles that the reason why LAPD has been present at so many of these sweeps in the past was due to concerns uh, of workers' safety from within LA sanitation. So now it looks like LA San is not going to be able to just dictate how this is all going down. It's actually going to have to require an approval from LASA to have the LAPD show up and uh, you know be the strong arm of the law in places where they're doing these these interactions with our unhoused neighbors. Uh, yep. Sanitation is going to be tied to LASA for all of their cleanups. They will no longer be authorized to enter an encampment without having a LASA team member present. This is huge. Like We've been seeing time and time again that all of these sweeps that, uh, like, we, when we've got uh, Street Watch LA, uh, DSLA's Homelessness and Poverty Committee, um, or ho- sorry, Housing and Homelessness Committee. Uh, the I'm thinking about the the Homelessness and Poverty Committee from City Council, a very different from DSA. <laughs> um, no, but so like the, the the these all of these different groups that have been doing this kind of outreach, doing street watch, doing the the activity of monitoring what is happening in these sweeps, making sure that 5611 isn't being violated and that people's rights are being respected. Uh, these these changes are huge, and and making sure that. LASA is going to actually be present at all of these interactions to watch out and ensure that our unhoused neighbors are not being victimized by sanitation or by the police. Because I have heard some crazy horror stories about some of the sanitation workers being extremely malicious and vindictive in how they're approaching uh, these kind of sweeps and, and, and the disposal of people's property and, and relishing in the joy of it. So it's, it's great to see that there's at least somebody there who is 
supposed to be taking the the well-being of our unhoused neighbors as their priority and i mean we're, we're gonna watch and see how this all goes but like seeing somebody who that is their mission statement being present at all of these interactions is huge it is such a big win so we're thrilled about that um speaking of 5611 there's now going to be a voluntary compliance aspect of it instead of it being mandatory so uh this is basically taking a step toward realizing the kinds of uh the the shall we say, ridiculous nature of 5611 and how it has been implemented across the city. There was a restriction on how it could be enforced in Skid Row. This is now rolling that out to be citywide. So uh, sanitation and loss are going to be working together with guidelines set forth by the health department to ensure that if something is deemed to be a health hazard within an encampment, that they're working with the residents to correct the hazard. And if something must be confiscated that, that is critical to their survival, that it must be replaced on the scene. So this should mean no more tent confiscation. Well, at least no more tent confiscation that's just kind of like cruel and capricious because a lot of what would happen yes. is people would have food in their tent and L.A. Sanitation would be like, well, we don't know how long that burrito's been in there. It could have been in there for weeks. We're going to throw out the entire tent instead of saying, okay, we just need to throw out the food. Like, this needs to go. Now there's yeah. an actual conversation to be had between the outreach workers, the person who's living there, and L.A. Sanitation, who, like, does have an interest in keeping things clean, but it always seemed like they were just using that as an excuse. And if you went out on street watch you would see that all of the time where like yeah. they would poke their head into a tent they'd say oh i see food in there throw the whole thing out yep. and there was never like you know even if the person was present at the site the person living in that tent was present at the site la sanitation wouldn't talk to them they wouldn't listen to them they would just throw the entire thing out and make that person you know have to scramble to find a place to live so this is all like you know it, it really good moves towards like treating Absolutely. people as humans and also acknowledging that like this is a really complicated messy thing that like encampments can be health hazards not because the people who living it, who are living in them are like health hazards or uniquely like dirty or anything but because like you need running water and soap and a place to throw out your trash in yeah. order to like not die from terrible diseases like we we haven't been really good at the sanitation thing for most of human history. It's been very bad. Uh, yeah. So this, you know, the last couple of centuries, we finally figured out, oh, don't poop upstream from where the water you're drinking is coming from. And that was a revolution. So like... It really was. Yeah, but like this is, you know, we can kind of like keep this going forward and keep people healthy and like happy. And also like, I hope build a little bit of trust between folks where they do want to get into permanent supportive housing because... Until now, a lot of people are very distrustful of LASA and of L.A. Sanitation and of LAPD and don't believe that the people who come by and are like, hey, we're going to throw out all your stuff, we'd also like to give you a place to live, have their best interests in, in, in mind. Yeah, so uh, one of the really cool things that I've been seeing, you know, because the work that I do with uh, Create Town for All, uh, sorry, K-Town for All, the, uh, one of the things that I've, I've been seeing people like posting up on our, on our uh, internal discussion is like people are 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 overjoyed at the prospect of seeing trash cans installed. I mean, yeah, basic things like having a trash can on a block within a quick walking distance of people's uh, of where people are having to camp out on the street to survive. 
like this is one of the things that we've been asking for that we've been demanding as part of the services not sweeps coalition we want to see basic sanitation services provided because it's absolutely preposterous that we are throwing this this kind of policing at our unhoused neighbors and punishing them for the fact that the city has completely failed to provide basic sanitation services like somewhere to throw out your damn trash like what do you expect people to be able to do if there's nowhere to put the trash? The people who I have interacted with so many times out there on the streets, on Skid Row, throughout Koreatown, all of these other places that I've done outreach and stuff, the reality is that there isn't somewhere for people to put the trash that they have. There, like I have seen so many times where there are unhoused folks sweeping up the area in front of their tents, trying desperately to keep it clean because they don't want to be living in that squalor either. It is the, the, the reality of the situation is that most of the stuff that has been dumped out on the streets in these areas, especially in Skid Row, most of that rotting food and, and you know, organic material, that's not coming from the homeless people. This is coming from the business owners and, and shopkeepers who are basically just you know, flagrantly violating the dumping rules relating to waste disposal within the city because the, rather than having to pay to actually get their trash hauled away when they've you know ordered too many tomatoes and oh no they're like they they've they've got to get rid of them now like there was a picture that was that popped up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago of the the sidewalk was completely blocked by an entire pallet of tomatoes that had just been dumped on the sidewalk with no regard for the fact that it was, you know, blocking the sidewalk so people couldn't walk around. And it was right next to where people were, were camped out because business owners that are, are willing to flaunt these laws don't give a damn about the unhoused neighbors that we've got living in and struggling to survive on the streets of the city. So seeing these kinds of changes to put into place of like an actual basic approach to sanitation and like the livability requirements of folks that are, are trying to survive on the streets is such a huge change of pace. And it is so incredibly welcome. Uh, yep. Again, like this is a huge victory for everybody in the services, not sweeps coalition and all of our allies. And it is a, you know, very vindicating because uh, we've seen over the last few months, the tone of the discussion surrounding homelessness in city hall and amongst our elected officials has changed so, so much. And that there's no way of, of, of avoiding the fact that showing up to public hearings, giving comment on these issues matters. Getting your voice out there matters. Making sure that they realize that somebody is watching and then shouting at them and calling them out for the bullshit that they're pushing really does matter. So uh, on that note, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a call to action for y'all at the end of this, but uh, whew, predictive policing, because we've got to go talk about the bumper. Yep. Uh, so there's so you, a uh, not as much stuff as, as uh, has been happening with the cops actually doing stuff, but a lot of uh, reporting on the police came out this week, including a really disturbing report on LAPD's stopping statistics uh, along racial lines. But let's uh, start off with uh, talking about what's happening with predictive policing and especially the work uh, that our allies over at Stop LAPD Spying have been doing. Yeah, so there's going to be a uh, a press conference being held on Tuesday morning at LAPD headquarters. We'll give you all the details on that at the end. But uh, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard us give you all those details before. It's going to be at the LAPD commissioners meeting. Um, so uh, predictive policing is basically this process that was rolled out uh, in the last you know decade or so, where the police use uh, past behavior and reports to indicate, or rather, past reports 
reports on past behavior to influence where they're going to be going out and doing this kind of uh, policing before the fact. So this is kind of like the, the stuff out of Minority Report, but rather than having a bunch of psychic people in a bath of white water, uh, they are using computer models to predict where it is that they need to have their police present. And so this, you know, the, the data that they're using is coming from existing uh, police stop data, uh, calls to the police, uh, all of the kinds of things that like that's that's where their data comes from. That's what they're going to be using to predict where they need to be putting these police in the future. And as we're going to talk about in the next segment here, the uh, the data is fundamentally flawed. And yeah. so well, if they, you I have mean, they'll <laughs> even they'll even like uh, one of the, the uh, things that at LAPD spying realized when they went through the records of people who were in like the gang database and like this predictive policing database was that 10% of the people had no criminal record whatsoever, but LAPD had already flagged them as potential threats. Like before they had yeah. ever committed a crime or been arrested for any reason or even been detained by the police for any reason, they were already seen as like a potential public safety threat. So like this just isn't just about lo localized policing. It's also down to a personal level where like you as a teen could end up in this database, never know about it, and then if you do ever get arrested for something or have a reason to come into contact with LAPD, yep. they'll treat you as though you're already a threat. Yeah, and uh, let me guess, most of the people that were already put into this database before they had any kind of a criminal conviction, did they happen to be black or brown? Oh, yeah. No, and, and they, you know, it was, I, it's like I go back to Ace's tweet where, you know, uh, a kid was stopped by the police and was asked, like, are you in a gang? And he's like, no. And they're like, do you know anyone who is? And he's like, well, yeah, my cousin's in a gang. And they're like, this kid's gang affiliated. Like, God damn it. You don't literally yep. have to do anything except be born. And LAPD will be like, you, a young black man, are now a potential criminal, even yeah, though you've done nothing to, to justify our judgment of that. Yeah, and there are so many things about like the the gang injunctions and whatnot. Where if you look at the history of it, people were being labeled as gang affiliated because like they were in a room with somebody who was gang affiliated at some point, and like uh, it got informed on, or there was a cop that was watching, or whatever. Like, yeah, the the mechanism for you being put onto this list are are completely capricious and arbitrary. There's nothing. There's nothing solid about it. It's just creating an excuse to do this policing. And you got to remember, like, who is it that's calling the cops on these folks so many of the times? Like, we, we go back to those stories that go viral about, like, the angry white ladies calling about a barbecue happening in the park. Or you go back to stories about angry white ladies calling about a kid selling bottles of water uh, on the sidewalk. Like, these are the kinds of things that are logged in as reports of criminal activity and uh, are then plugged into these databases, which then create these predictive policing responses, which then leads to over-policing of specific neighborhoods and is incredibly racist at its root. And it, it disproportionately impacts um, working class communities, uh, specifically communities of color. And it's just patently absurd. So there's going to be a press conference on Tuesday morning. We'll give you more details about that, but it's 9 a.m. at police headquarters. Um, yeah, show up and uh, throw your voice behind the demands that uh, LAPD end this predictive policing program because it's just absurd. Yeah. <sighs> uh, so moving on to uh, the other absurdity that came out about LAPD this week, uh, they have some really disturbing uh, racial disparities in who they stop and who yeah, they actually they find contraband on. Uh, and surprisingly, white people are more likely to have contraband on them, but are way less likely to be searched. So uh, that's a strange contradiction. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's not really a surprise to anybody who's doing any activism in this area. Uh, so yeah, the LA Times analyzed policing data over a 10-month period and found that the police are stopping black and brown folks disproportionately in every single LAPD division except Topanga. So according to the LA Times, quote, across the city, 24% of black drivers and passengers were searched compared with 16% of Latinos and 5% of whites during a recent 10-month period, end quote. So continuing on, they also say that Quote, of the more than 385,000 drivers and passengers pulled over by the LAPD from July 1st, 2018 through the end of April, 27% of them were black in a city that is only about 9% black. About 47% of those pulled over were Latino, which is roughly equivalent to their share of the population. About 18% of those stopped were white, while 28% of the city is white. So there's a also a great tweet from uh, Cindy Chang over at LA Times who is working on the LAPD beat uh, after previously working on uh, the sheriff's beat. Um, quote, one black South LA resident, Bryant Magnum, said he has been stopped and searched so many times that he no longer drives his BMW at night. He says, I'm more worried about the cops than criminals. I mean, that speaks hmm. so many volumes right there that people literally are more worried about being stopped and harassed or shot by LAPD than they are about gang members. You might say that our policing practices have gone off the rails when people are literally more afraid of the cops than they are of gang members. So looking at some of these statistics, they've got uh, the, the LAP, uh, LA Times put out a fantastic little infographic here uh, that really lays it out with big block tables showing you exactly what the proportions of you know, Latino, black, white, and other uh, categories are for these stops. One of the areas that they pointed out uh, where there's a, dispro a, a massively disproportionate like understopping is the cops apparently do not stop Asian people like hardly ever. Uh, they account for an incredibly small percentage of the number of people who are stopped. Um, but when you look at the, uh, the, 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 the fun statistic that you pointed out before relating to contraband, uh, it was 17%, 17.2% of black stops, of stops of black people related to, uh, to found contraband, 16.2% uh, for Latinos, 20.3% in uh, white people's cars, and in uh, an uncategorized other, it was 16.4%. So despite the fact that there is so much disproportionate impact on the black and Latino community, uh, white folks are more likely to be carrying, you know, drugs, alcohol, firearms, whatever it is that is labeled as contraband uh, at the time that they are stopped. Um, one more quick quote from the LA Times here uh, relating to Michael Moore, Chief Michael Moore's response to this finding. Quote, at a police commission meeting on Tuesday this past week, Moore highlighted the overall decrease in vehicle stops, saying it was in response to residents' concerns about the disparate impact of traffic stops, particularly in South Los Angeles. He said he will soon announce changes to Metro, this is the Metro Division of LAPD, Metro's crime suppression units, which community groups have demanded be withdrawn from South LA. Moore declined to elaborate on the changes, but he has previously spoken about possibly switching Metro officers from unmarked cars to black and whites, as well as further reducing the reliance on vehicle investigative stops. 
end quote. Yeah, and so, Metro is supposed to be the elite uh, kind of branch of LAPD. Oh. They've been used for everything from crowd control to these kind of crime suppression to saturation sweeps. Like, they're supposed to be the part of LAPD that can be dropped into any neighborhood in the city and make an impact immediately. But over and over and over again, we've seen that their tactics and their method of policing is more racist and hard-nosed than, like, anyone else's in the city. Absolutely. And doesn't actually result in better statistics in the long run. It generally just results in a lot more use of force, a lot more fear in the community, and a lot more distrust of the cops. And there's justification for all of that when you look at these kind of statistics that show the disproportionate impact that their use of force and everything else have on communities of color. So it's... It's LAPD's Metro Division has been a, at the forefront of all of the problems with LAPD, and it's it's really time to uh, take a long, a long, hard look at how that group works. So, I mean, the fact that they run around in under in like unmarked uh, undercover cars and are doing these kind of uh, you know gang uh, related gang suppression related mm. activities is really like. That there's a specific kind of mentality that seems to go along with the people that fall into this role, and use of force is just like becomes second nature for so many of these officers, and we see that time and again with the kinds of reporting that come out, and it's you know we have the probably some of the most militarized policing and definitely the deadliest police forces. Uh, operating here within the city and county of Los Angeles in our police department and our sheriff's department. It is beyond time that we do uh, undertake some massive reforms and start seriously looking at how we can change this for the better. I would highly recommend that everybody, if you haven't read it before, uh, Alex Vitali's End of Policing is a great book that talks about how we need to move beyond our system of uh, you know reactive responses to criminality and instead work on building community solutions that look at solving these these problems at their sources which in almost every case is a lack of economic opportunity uh you know systemic racism uh and all of the other issues that are at the core of why our city seems to be falling apart so much of the time hmm huh. all right well let's uh let's move on to some other terrible behavior this coming from uh, uh landlords after AB 1482, the statewide rent cap bill was signed. Now, what's interesting about what's happening here is there's a famous Stanford study of rent control that essentially says, you know, don't do rent control because landlords are so greedy that they'll hike up the rent and ultimately harm tenants more uh, in anticipation of trying to get around rent control rules than uh, not having rent control and allowing the landlords to sort of parse their greed out over a longer period of time. And the Stanford study came down on the conclusion that if landlords are so greedy that they're going to spike the rent yep. before rent control regulation comes into an area, you just shouldn't do rent control regulation. Instead of like <laughs> the reasonable conclusion that you should just regulate the <laughs> effing landlords so they can't do that. Uh, but as we've been hearing reports <sighs> out of Law 2, out of uh, the Eviction Defense Network, out of uh, Chinatown for Equitable Development, uh, there's a lot of 60-day notices going out all of a sudden. Um, and this is something that the landlords had threatened that they were going to do, and it seems like they are. So let's talk about Absolutely. some of these details. Yeah, so this is all coming on the heels of this past Tuesday, October 8th. Actually, so, I mean, it's coming on the heels of 
uh, the legislature passing this legislation. Uh, and it was all done. It started off uh, in anticipa anticipation of Governor Newsom signing AB 1482, which he did on Tuesday, October 8th. Uh, the main impacts of this law are, are pretty complicated, but they're definitely better than what we had before, which was basically a complete lack of any kind of statewide yeah. uh, limits on rent increases. So uh, before we really get into the nitty gritty of rent caps, one of the huge inclusions in this bill is just cause eviction. Specifically under this law, those those protections come into place once you pass one year of tenancy. So if you've been like if you've been living someplace for more than a year, you would either need to you need to violate your lease in some way, like missing a rent payment, uh, in order for your landlord to have a quote unquote just cause for evicting you. Uh, prior to this law, a landlord could serve you with a 60-day eviction notice for effectively no cause. And we'll get into this again here at the end of the segment. But for yeah. now, let's go back to the limits on rent increases. So who does this apply to? It's buildings that are more than 15 years old and are not already covered by lo local rent control or rent stabilization rules. So the 15-year age here is not a fixed year of construction in the way that it is with uh, Costa Hawkins. So in this regard, it is a huge, just completely massive win for tenant advocacy groups because yep. under Costa Hawkins, it was just like anything built prior to 1995, or sorry, anything built after 1995 uh, was totally immune, like you could not put any kind of a rent control on those buildings, regardless of the fact that those buildings are now what twenty four years old. So well, and in the in the city of Los Angeles, it was from anything built after nineteen seventy eight. Technically, exactly. Yeah, so that's why because you know of Costa Hawkins. Yeah, and that that's why you know you had places like Palms where they were long time residential neighborhoods, not single family home neighborhoods, but apartment building neighborhoods where you had a lot of rent control mm -hmm. buildings, and then newer developments elsewhere elsewhere in the city uh, in the eighties and nineties that were not rent controlled, even sometimes just a few blocks from large pockets for rent controlled neighborhoods. Yeah, so most of the buildings that are covered by this new law are uh, just like those. They're, they're multifamily apartment buildings, that the, exactly the kind that you would expect. Uh, condos and single-family homes, for the most part, are going to be exempt from this law, uh, just like they used to be, unless, of course, they're owned by a corporation or a real estate investment trust. This is a big change because single-family homes that are owned by companies like Blackstone make up a huge swath of South Los Angeles' rental market. Uh, another exemption worth noting is uh, duplexes where the owner lives in one of the units and rents out the other unit. Um, most of the rental units here in the city of Los Angeles, which is, I believe, something like 75%, are already covered by the city's 1978 rent stabilization ordinance, uh, which applies to, of course, everything built prior to October 1978. But according to reporting in Curbed, more than 1.2 million homes in Los Angeles will now be protected under the terms of this new law. Rents mm. are of, uh, under this law, rents will not be allowed to go up by more than 10% period uh, on any year-to-year -year basis until the law expires in 2030. But uh, the landlords will be allowed to come awfully close to that 10% figure most of the time if they want. The limit is set at 5% plus the cost, the local cost of inflation. Um, Curbed had a simple example from Redondo Beach where there are no existing rent control laws. So this law is going to be what comes in to govern how rent can be increased. And inflation there was 3.8% last year. So the maximum rent increase is 8.8%, which is more than double the permissible rent increases uh, yep. under RSO in Los Angeles this past year, which, uh, by the way, like was kind of shocking for a bunch of folks who are living in RSO units because 
This past year was 4% for RSO, which is the first time that that's happened in something like a decade, right? It's been yeah, 3% it's, it's been a forever. While. I mean, and, and even then, you know, like if you're looking at, you know, let's say an 8, 8.8% rent increase, that means the price of your unit is going to double in less than a decade. Exactly. You know, if you're paying $1,500 now, by 2030, you'll be paying $3,000 a month for the same unit. And yep. so there's some real questions as to like how effective this is going to be because we know that like, Wages don't double every 10 years. Uh, in fact, wages have remained fairly flat since like 1978, um, right when LA passed their RSO. Um, so it, it's it's going to be curious to see how much protection this actually does afford to people and how much of like, how much the landlords are just going to burn out their own market. Like I really wonder about what the end game is here because the velocity of money matters. And if you don't have people earning more money year over year over year, then you can't afford to pay higher and higher rents. Like at some point you just no longer have enough money in the system to afford that. Uh, and we know that like a lot of these luxury developments uh, in, in LA have had a hard time getting filled up. I think there was a recent study in Manhattan that found like half of the, the luxury units built in the last decade are still empty. So, yeah. you know, how, how are you making money doing this? It makes no sense, but I understand financialization is like a weird quantum, like sub reality that we all live in now and suffer from, but it's still like at some point you have to have the liquidity to pay the bills and like pay off your bonds and debts. And I feel like, this building glut that we've gone through as far as luxury buildings, the bill for that is going to come due sooner rather than later. And it's going to be, you know, smaller communities and communities sort of on the fringe of LA that are going to start seeing uh, these impacts like first and foremost, where like the rent starts to jump and jump and jump and people just aren't going to be able to afford to live there. And without the economic base, those communities are going to suffer, see more business falter. That's going to drive people away who, who have jobs there. It's, it just becomes like a cascading cycle. Um, and especially one that like with the weak macroeconomic indicators we have in the the U S right now really kind of scares me for what the next six to 18 months look like, you know? Um, It's, you know, not to go too far afield, but like (laughs) 8.8% rent to bring it back home, like 8.8% rent a year is a lot of money uh, and also becomes an incredibly lot of money, not, you know, not too far in the distant future. So, you know, even if you're just talking five years out, your $1,500 building is like $2,200 a month. It's a Mm -hmm. lot of freaking money when the average salary in LA is $25,000 a year or average wage is $25,000 a year. Oof. Yeah, it's, uh, it's. This is this is a, a big win because the landlords have been gouging folks for a very long time and have been able to do so because we do, did not have any real renter protections here in California. Uh, and, and what protections we did have are very easy for the landlords to skirt around. And that actually comes directly into place here. You would think that even under this law that doesn't actually provide that much protection for tenants, you know, landlords are still able to double your rent in under a decade because, you know, the average inflation rate in uh, Los Angeles has been two and a half percent. That's the average rate over the last two decades, right? So even mm-hmm. then, if it's two and a half percent plus the CPI, or sorry, if CPI is two and a half percent and then you've got your five percent increase on top of that, that's seven and a half percent in 10 years, that is double the rent. That literally is double the rent. Yep. If it's at nine percent or 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 ten percent, that happens in seven or eight years. But this is like <laughs> we're talking a massive increase in rents. So that should still be plenty of money for these landlords, wouldn't you think? Well, yep. turns out 
Uh, no, it's not nearly enough for landlords because they want their passive investment to be returning tons and tons of money all the time because they're very greedy. So at an apartment owner's trade show in Pasadena on Wednesday, October 2nd, so this predates the signing of the bill, prominent landlord attorney Dennis Block, who any tenant advocacy group out there knows who this guy is and they all detest the fact that he is involved in so, so many evictions. He told the gathered landlords uh, that their best course of action to get around the rent gouging regulations of AB 1482 was to immediately begin handing out no-fault eviction notices to long-term tenants who pay low rent or who make frivolous requests. Yeah, so a a, a quote from Dennis Block uh, that elicited... uh, cheers and laughs from the audience was that he claims to have uh, evicted quote more tenants than anybody else on planet earth end quote cool i like this guy Mm, yeah so he's all kinds of special but anyway i don't want to introduce him to my guillotine ever (laughs) like you know not the type of guy i want to like make intimately familiar with that device Uh, Uh, yeah, so uh, when it comes to these, uh, this, this tactic of uh, evicting people, you know, which is anyone who has a soul, if you're just evicting long-term, rentets, long-term tenants because they're paying below market rate, uh, you're probably going to feel a little bit bad about that uh, or feel really bad about that if you like, actually care. Uh, but he's quoted in the LA Times as saying, quote, you don't have to feel bad about this. It's not your fault. It's the state legislator's fault, end quote. Yep. So, mm, yeah. And if, if mm. uh, <sighs> yeah, getting real angry over here. Uh, if your landlord is threatening to raise your rent in advance of, this new, of these new rules going into effect, reach out to LA Tenants Union. They are absolutely itching for a yep. fight with any landlord that tries this tactic. And uh, on top of that, this Tuesday, we're going to be having a vote in city council uh, on a new emergency measure that was just introduced literally this morning. Uh, so this is so hot off the presses that it didn't even uh, get posted to the city clerk's website uh, before we recorded. I had to get a screenshot of it uh, sent by somebody who had access to it. Um, basically saying moving that city council requests that the city attorney with the assistance from the housing and community investment department, which is HCID, uh, draft an emergency ordinance implementing a temporary moratorium on no fault evictions for rental units built prior to January 1st, 2006, with certain exceptions effective through December 31st, 2019. So this is like jumping straight into it and saying, whoa, 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 we are hearing about all of these uh, eviction notices that are coming through. I literally was just seeing people talking uh, on our uh, on our community chat group for K Town for All this morning about the fact that folks down in Gardena, like entire buildings worth of tenants, are being given sixty day notices. Like we are seeing the immediate impact of this bill going into effect is landlords trying to do their best to skirt the rules because they are so greedy for seeking these kind of rents that they are willing to do anything that it takes to make sure that their their source of income is protected here which this is again this is passive income this is just capital you know capital producing more capital there is they're not actually doing work here they are yep. just milking the system and maximizing their profit and it's great to see that you know this is actually a motion that was introduced by Mitch O'Farrell uh, and Curran Price and was seconded by uh, Wesson, Bonin, Martinez, and, and Jose Huizar. Uh, this is 
is really good to see that they're trying to put in an actual tenant protection uh, step to to really uh, preempt what is being uh, what is going to be going to a place at the state level and make sure that people are actually going to be protected here in the city of Los Angeles because unscrupulous landlords are being shitty and they need to be stopped. Yep. Uh, let's uh, go on to other unscrupulous shitty landlords. Ah. Uh, this time... Uh, in terms of the L.A. County assessor, uh, who's responsible basically for determining like what the value of your property is worth, your business, like how much you're supposed to get taxed on stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that office has been rocked by scandal uh, with some like some pretty big developments today. But this one's a little bit like kind of wonky and technical. But this really matters because like L.A. County and California in general have been gutted by Prop 13, allowing people to pay way too little in taxes. And that has a massive knock-on effect to the rest of us who aren't members of the capital-owning class. So when the people who do own property aren't paying their fair share, the rest of us suffer. Absolutely. So uh, for when you talk about the long-term, uh, like how long this has been an issue, uh, John Noguez, who was the previous assessor, uh, in 2012, he was accused of taking $185,000 in bribes from a tax consultant in exchange for a reduction in property values for their clients. So this is kind of one of those exact like pay-to-play schemes where if you bribed the former assessor, you were able to get a discounted property tax rate for your cons- for your uh, clients, and uh, that kind of that scandal rocked the office. And then uh, Jeff Prang, who was voted into office in order to uh, reform it and change it and make it more open, uh, he has been making these kind of changes and apparently has been doing a pretty good job for the most part, but mm-hmm. uh, quoting from the LA Times here, quote, Stephen Adamus, Yvonne Austin, and Scott Woods say county assessor Jeff Prang, his top managers and county lawyers, have violated tax codes to benefit property owners with ties to elected officials by giving them favorable decisions on reassessments. The trio alleges that the county has intentionally lost legal cases, reversed property tax decisions, and reimbursed millions of dollars to individuals and corporations in back taxes, end quote. This is... This is huge. And so one of the one of the really fun things is uh, I'm just going to quote again here, uh, quote, court documents show several groups and individuals have received special treatment, including the Rand Corporation, various apartment complex owners and property developers and a San Marino property swap involving John Barger, the brother of county supervisor, Catherine Barger. So, Hmm. yeah, uh, we talked uh, a little bit about Catherine Barger and uh, her proclivity toward flying around in uh, helicopters uh, and wasting taxpayer money there. But apparently uh, her brother is helping to make sure that we do not have as much money in the county as is necessary to cover the costs that these, uh, shall we say, financially or fiscally responsive, fiscally uh, conservative Republicans... (laughs) Uh, are, are using to spend our tax dollars on frivolous things like making sure that Catherine Barger is able to make it out to uh, induct a new board member for a water board up in the uh, very corner of the county because that is so important that it merited something like, what was it, $17,000 in uh, air travel costs to operate well, that she, helicopter for that the- one visit? 
she's also the mover at the LA County board level who oh, wanted yeah. to file the motion for Martin V. Boise, you know, saying mm-hmm. like, hey, we can't allow people to sleep in tents yep. on our street. Yep. Uh, but apparently she's okay with corruption-ish. I mean, it's not exactly clear what the if there's a connection between John Barger and Catherine Barger in this one, but like, you know, like there's a reason that uh, Jerry Brown's sister is on the board of Sempra Energy. Like, yeah, she's a lawyer and stuff, but having the Brown name in the state of California opens a lot of doors. Uh, And there's a reason for that. Like this kind of, you know, not to go like too far afield into weird conspiracy stuff at the moment, but like Hunter Biden... Hunter Biden wasn't like given all of these really lucrative positions because like everyone thought he was a really good businessman. It's because his name was Hunter effing Biden. You know, if his name was like Hunter anything else, he wouldn't have found himself being offered board positions and lucrative business deals because of the connections that he could bring with him. Like that's part of the way that this game is played. And it may not always be outright corruption insofar as it may not be illegal, but it's still corruption. Like legal corruption is just as corrosive and terrible as illegal corruption. Absolutely. And you know, as this moves forward, I think we're going to find out about more like shady links here. Uh, Catherine Barger again is the only sitting Republican on the LA County board of supervisors. Uh, her and John Lee are the only two Republicans at the like elected level of LA city government um yeah i mean it it seems like we can fix that absolutely so in in fairness let's go ahead and uh i'll I'll read the response to the suit that came out of prang's office uh spokesman steve whitmore said quote simply put this lawsuit is groundless it's been filed by three disgruntled assessor employees alleging members of the assessor's executive team and county council conspired to provide preferential treatment to connected taxpayers that resulted in millions of dollars in illegal tax refunds. We are certain that the claims will be found meritless once the facts of the case are presented. We want to emphasize that we do not retaliate against our employees, and we have taken great measures to prevent what happened in 2012 from ever reoccurring in the office, end quote. I always like when their response opens with, these are disgruntled employees. And it's like, well, no shit. That's why they're suing. Like, gruntled (laughs) employees don't sue you. Gruntled employees are gruntled and are happy with where they are. It's when when they're disgruntled that they take action. So I always find that one silly. They're like, these people are pissed off as though that's like a reason to not believe them. Uh, But yeah, that's, um, we'll keep you apprised of action as it goes through the courts. (laughs) Uh, Things are going to be moving, you know, at a glacial pace as these lawsuits unfortunately do. Um, But yeah, this one, you know, maybe something exciting will happen. Uh, Like exciting things happened at City Hall this week uh, on a lot of different fronts. So we're going to like kind of roll through these because there's like a lot of big stuff. Uh, Herb Wesson has suddenly decided to get very active as he is making a play to move himself up to the county board. So let's start with uh, public banking on the heels of AB 857 being signed. Yeah, so Wesson announced earlier this week that he would be authoring a motion to hire a banking expert to help the city establish a public bank in response to AB 857. So according to reporting by Eric Hines of the Daily News, quote, Wesson said he'll file a motion this week calling for the council to authorize a search for a banking expert to help the city get a public bank up and running. The move comes several days after Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law AB 857, which allows statewide establishment of public banks, end quote. So we got a copy of the motion uh, that was filed this morning, 
And he, it basically is saying, like, you know, at the end, it's it's always, you know, there's always the the preamble of all of the background information. But then the gist of it really comes at the end where he says, mm-hmm. quote, I therefore move that the city council instruct the chief legislative analyst with assistance from the city administrative office, officer, rather, office of finance, economic and workforce development department and city attorney to obtain consultant services needed to establish a public bank in Los Angeles. So he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, it, it took the whole week, but... Thank you, Wesson, and thank you, uh, Mike Bonin, for seconding that motion and getting Hooray. it moving. Like this is this yeah. is fantastic news. The actual, you know, potential impact of this motion uh, further down the line, because it, it, likely it's probably going to have to be something that goes to a vote again, just like Measure B last year. Uh, we're going to have to vote on it. And make sure that we actually make the amendments to the city charter uh, in order to actually establish this public bank. But one of the biggest things that you'll probably remember us you know, yelling about last year was that the LA Times editorial board came out with this absolutely just scathing review of Measure B and calling it one of the uh, least, uh, one, one of the worst pieces of legislation to come out of city council as a ballot measure, uh, I think ever. It was it really yeah. absolutely scathing uh, review by the LA Times editorial board that's trashed this measure and you know it still got 46 percent of the vote uh not enough to clear that 50 percent threshold of course but still got 46 percent of the vote despite the fact that la times editorial board came out saying like this is so half-baked nobody knows what they're talking about this is not ready for prime time boom 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 echoing the the uh, uh jack humphreyville points uh over at city watch so now it seems like Herb Wesson is is taking note of what that rollout looked like last year and taking steps to preempt it by saying we are going to have the groundwork laid out before we take this to the ballot again, uh, because it will require a change to the county or the city's charter in order for able to us for us to be able to establish a public bank in the city. Uh, so that something will come to the voters again, but it looks like this time around we will have a fully thought out, uh, fully fleshed out like design of what a public bank is going to look like, how it's going to be managed, all of that, because we're hiring somebody to do all of that consulting ahead of time, which is uh, very good. Yeah, I mean, it can be. It's it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, I, I feel like the risk is that we're going to get someone from the private banking sector uh, that, you know, other states that have kind of tried this, this way of developing their public banking uh, haven't really gone anywhere. Like the state of Colorado famously, like, stocked a board with banking executives and lawyers who were all like, shockingly, public banks are bad. We shouldn't do that. So <laughs> I think the city of L.A. is, you know, hopefully a little bit more committed. Uh, here's the other thing. Herb Wesson is gone in 2020. So I worry that he's doing that thing where he's, you know, really excited about something when it gets, you know, when it gets going. And uh-huh. then when you like turn around in six months or a year to be like, hey, Herb, what's going on with this thing? He's like, not there. Um, well, we'll and he'll, see. you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I you know, <laughs> I hope another champion on city council is like going to stand up and like fight for this. And like, I think there are several that could. I think honestly, if, you know, like Nithya Raman or Lorraine Lundquist uh, get onto city council, we could definitely oh, see yeah. some movement in the right direction. We would definitely see like a more progressive tilt to city council. And that could be really, really good for uh, making sure that these kind of proposals don't die. But I also worry uh, that, you know, Herb Wesson 
you know, as excitable as he may be and as solid as he has been on a lot of stuff, uh, also has shown that he doesn't always fall through on things um, and that we don't see that, like that stuff doesn't get left to the wayside because this one can be huge. And when we're looking at what's happening in, you know, the San Fernando Valley right now with like the, the Saddleback fire and the Sandalwood fire, uh, we have to rebuild after that. You know, we can't keep allowing these disasters to become just another uh, cog in the disaster capitalism wheel where, like, banks and insurance companies use them to make money while people lose their homes and suffer. Like, a public bank that can finance this kind of rebuilding in a resilient, sustainable way is exactly what we need in this situation. And it's a shame that we're going to have to wait five years for that bank to even really come into existence if this is done the right way. And it could be, like, a decade or two if it's not done the right way. And that's frustrating. Like, we know what these answers are. We, we just, like, need to actually embrace them. And we can do that, uh, hopefully, before the entire effing city burns down. Um, yeah. I was going to say, real quick, before yeah. we move on, my, my hunch is that given that Bonin was the second on this and because he's in an odd district, uh, he's probably going to end up being the torchbearer for this project moving forward. So there, there does seem to be at least some interest on the city council to continue moving this project and keep fighting for this fight. But as you said, if we, if we don't hire the right consultants, if we don't get the right quote-unquote experts in there and they, they come from an establishment banking background, uh, we, could be in for, we could be in for a long, hard slog where they'll come back potentially saying that this is going to be just too expensive to capitalize. And uh, I'm, I'm really hoping that they're going to be leaning heavily on the, the folks over at the California Public Banking Alliance and Public Bank LA to help inform how this process moves forward because there are some really great lawyers up in San Francisco in the San Francisco public banking movement who are an invaluable resource to help really guide this project forward. And if we really do, are, if we're really serious about this, LA, the city of LA is so much bigger and the potential impacts of a bank here are so much greater than they are in San Francisco. Like, you know, San Francisco is, uh, what, 300 or three quarters of a million people. Like the yeah. city of LA is more than 4 million at this point. Like yep. we should really be leaning on the, the experts up there that have been working on this for so long. So I'm really hoping that that's the direction that we end up going in as we move forward of getting, getting some of those folks that have actually been fighting for this, uh, and who know what they're talking about and don't come from an establishment banking background uh, to to actually put like, you know, public good at the center of the charter for any public bank here and making sure that this bank is really set up to benefit everyone in the community and not just, you know, the traditional wealthy shareholders that are the benefits of a, of a standard commercial bank. Yeah. So let's uh, go on to some new regulations that were put forward uh, that are going to have that are going to uh, be regulating our transportation network companies. So the Lyfts and the Ubers uh, of the world. Uh, And uh, it seems like L.A. is trying to move more in line into uh, the model that New York has in place. Absolutely. So this is uh, council file number 19-1214. And uh, what it would really do is so this was this was introduced by Wes and Price, Martinez and Coretz. Um, they put forth this this uh, this motion to get the ball rolling to change how Lyft and Uber operate and any other of these TNC companies, uh, well, TNC yeah, acronyms, ATM machines, whatever, uh, how they operate within the city, really at, a, at mainly with a focus on wages. So following the fact that uh, SB5 got put into place, it is SB5, right? Not AB5? Uh, no, it's AB5. AB5. 
following yeah, the implementation. Yeah, because Gonzalez is in the, uh, the assembly. That's right. There we go. So we can chop this part out. Uh, following the implementation of AB5 and the reclassification of all of these workers in the gig economy to be workers rather than the independent contractors that these companies have been relying upon uh, that classification in order to avoid paying actual wages and paying benefits and all of that, this is a direct swipe at those companies that is targeted at changing how they pay their workers. Uh, basically, it would be mandating that there is a $15 minimum wage associated with working as well as $15 or more per hour to cover operating costs of their vehicles and other business-related expenses. So yep. the, the motion basically lays it out there and says, hey, do a cumulative cost analysis of what the impact of these, uh, what, what this is doing to the entire economy of Los Angeles, but also, like, what does it cost to operate one of these vehicles? What does it cost to get the insurance? What does it cost uh, to, to run this business and be an employee and shoulder these responsibilities that have been shirked by uh, companies like Lyft and Uber for so many years? And then on top of that, we are going to guarantee that they actually get a $15 minimum wage and that they have uh, the ability to earn overtime uh, rather than just being milked for all of the uh, you know the the all of the work that they actually do by these companies and you know just seeing their their wages being cut time and time again when uh, Lyft and Uber decide to start being more competitive with one another, of course the way that they do that is by cutting costs to uh, consumers, uh, which they then immediately uh, follow up with cutting wages to workers. So. Time for that to stop. It's great to see the city of L.A. finally uh, following in the footsteps of New York City and uh, actually moving ahead with this. This is great. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see how that one gets implemented and, and all the hoops that uh, Uber and Lyft jump through to try and demand that, you know, they don't actually pay people $15 an hour for, as you know, every minute because they're in they the car. Because they don't they're not employees. It's not part of their core yeah, it's gonna It's going to be a freaking mess. And also, Uber and Lyft have put $90 million aside uh, to go ahead and fight uh, to have a ballot measure to overturn uh, SB or AB5. So expect to see this one on the ballot uh, in 2020, most that. likely in yeah. November. Uh, by the way, if you do see like somebody collecting signatures and they're like signed this thing about like Uber and Lyft things, like I know that person's getting paid per signature, but just don't effing sign it. Yeah. Like 100%, like tell your friends and family, like don't sign that. And like and tell, tell that person because like here, here's the thing is one. if you if you talk to the people who collect petitions, they have a say in what petitions they're willing to carry. Like a lot of folks weren't getting paid or decided not to take the um the prop 10 signature uh, petitions because they weren't paying enough per signature for them to make money. So they're just like, I'm not going to carry that one. If enough people aren't signing a petition, the people who carry petitions for a living and like do that during election season will not carry those petitions. So like go out of your way to let people know to not sign that petition because that's how we can stop Uber and Lyft from ever bringing this to the ballot. That's how we can force them to like actually have to come to account for the economic damage that they've done um, through their ridiculously stupid quote-unquote tech companies. But we, we've covered that one a lot. So we're going to move on uh, to the big changes that are coming to uh, elections in the county of Los Angeles. Like, not only are we moving away from neighborhood precincts to these voting centers where you can vote for like two weeks before the election actually, 
easily. Yeah. So you have plenty of time to go in there, go to whatever's convenient to you, whether it's work, whether it's like your home, whether it's like you're out in the beach in Santa Monica and decide, hey, I feel like voting today. I'll go to the voting center. <laughs> you can make that happen. And it's a really like, I think it's it's pretty nifty. There are some arguments that it's not going to be as accessible as the precinct system for a lot of people. I think that the counterpoint to that is like, a lot of the neighborhood precincts are understaffed on election day, that it's yeah. a real pain, it's a real lift for the county of LA as, as yeah. huge and sprawling as it is to run all of these precincts efficiently, especially when they're not paying you minimum wage to work there. Like if you're a poll worker, you're getting like $8 an hour plus like a sandwich for lunch. Like increase the pay rate and people want to be there. But yeah. LA has decided to go ahead and experiment with this model. Uh, and the state of California just passed and Newsom signed SB 72, which does what? So, uh, yeah, same day registration. This is one of the things that uh, voting rights activists have been pushing for for so long across this country. Uh, what it means is that you'll be allowed to like register to vote and then cast your ballot at literally the same time, which is huge. One of the biggest Magic. things that we've been it's, it's, it's honestly, it's just incredible. Like it's it's great when uh, advocates have been pushing for things like automatic voter registration whenever you get your driver's license or anything like that. That's cool. Like those are, are fantastic uh, mechanisms to make sure that you know people are able to vote as easily as possible. But there's nothing that can compete with the uh, enabling uh, the, 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 you know, the mass enabling of, vote, of voting rights uh, within a population as same day registration. This is absolutely huge. I, like, I literally cannot begin to describe how big this is. It's There are hundreds of thousands of voters in LA County who are not currently registered to vote because of any number of things. Like if you're a senior citizen and your driver's license or your ID have expired, you might not have updated where you are living uh, now that you're in a nursing home or whatever else the situation is, and you are no longer registered to vote. The like getting people to remember that they need to register to vote like three or four weeks out in advance of the yep. election is one of the biggest hurdles to getting voters to actually participate in our democracy on any given election. And you hear about this like time and time again in places, especially like in the in New York, where like New York primary elections, when it comes to voting for uh, like either in the, the, the Democratic or the Republican primary, and let's not kid ourselves here, nobody actually gives a damn about voting in the Republican primaries in New York, but the huh. Democratic primaries, like you gotta be registered to vote six months or something like that in advance of the damn elections. It is incredibly in prohibitive toward actually engaging with new voters and getting people involved in this process and getting, you know, people who are newly awakened to the idea of, oh my God, my voice actually matters. Uh, how do I get involved and how do I do this? Like people, most of the people in this country are not nearly as plugged into this shit as we are. Like this is rotting our brains and completely just dominating all of the time that we have to think about anything outside of like how we survive day to day. This is not what most people think about. Most people are yep. not even really aware that there's an election fucking happening until just a couple of weeks beforehand. And by having it so that it's like, oh, well, no, sorry, I just, yeah, you just found out about this election, but you can't vote because you didn't register in time and da da da, is incredibly frustrating for people because these election opportunities only really come around, uh, the big ones only really come around once every two years. Uh, and the big, big ones come around once every four years. And 
I mean, to be fair, like in L.A. County, we have had so many special elections and uh, all of these other things for for small ballot measures, for replacements, for people who have been promoted or who have uh, you know been kicked out of office for any number of reasons or taken big contracts with corporations that do consulting for uh, International Olympic Committee related folks and all of that jazz. These like those special elections don't really get that much attention, but these elections every two to four years are huge. And even then, people are not really aware of them. So having the ability to register and vote on the same day is incredibly important. And this is particularly true of our unhoused population in the city and county of Los Angeles, because right now, if you are a if you are trying to sign up to register to vote and you are unhoused, you do not have a permanent mailing address the county's registration system is supposed to let you just put like a cross street of where it is that you are normally residing. And that's supposed to be sufficient. But if you do not include a mailing address, your application ends up getting rejected. And I don't know if this is just like gross oversight by the folks over at the county registrar's office or what, but that little glitch or whatever it is, is causing people to get rejected. you're allowed to have a, a absentee ballot sent to a post office box, but you're not allowed to register at a post office box. So if you don't have a permanent address, you can't actually, it's harder to register to vote. And now you are told when you're doing voter registration that if somebody is like unhoused or doesn't have a permanent address, they could put down the intersection where they live. But that changes and isn't always accepted by the county. So, yeah. like, there's a bunch of messes here and, like, things that still have to be uh, kind of, like, ironed out. But it, it does allow you, like, if you're a, a, you know, if you're like me and you're registered no party and you want to vote in the Democratic primary, then you can show up day of the primary and register to vote as a Democrat and then vote in the primary. And, like, yeah, that's, that's a game changer huge. and will really open up the primaries here that are sort of semi-closed um, and will also give people the ability to, you know, actually vote the way that they want to instead of like making a decision and then being locked into that until after the election and not being able to actually, you know, vote on the things that they want to vote on. Yeah. So that actually really came into play, uh, back in 2016 and there've been a lot of changes since then, but back in 2016, when, uh, people who thought that they were registered as no party affiliation went to go and try to participate in the democratic primary to vote for either Bernie or Hillary, they went to the polls and then they were turned away because it turned out that when they put down IND as their party affiliation, which they assumed meant independent, as in not registered with any party affiliation, they found out that IND was actually the American Independence Party, which is not a party that actually exists in a meaningful way, but was still like the second largest party registration in the state of California because so many people wanted to say, no, I am not affiliated with any of these people because I don't trust them or whatever. I don't want to be beholden to party politics. So they signed up as IND and then they found out that that's actually a third party. uh, Well, I I actually know I... There were several times when I was phone banking for people and they were listed as independent and I was like, hey, you know, independent is its own party here. That's not no party. You need to go re-register as no party. And 90% of the people I tell that to on the phone are like, oh my God, you're right. And then I got one lady, she was like, no, I meant to do that. And I was like, no, no, the American independent is like its own libertarian party. She was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I I meant to do that. And I was like, oh, all right, well, okay, cool. Like I found a unicorn. Like congratulations, you do exist exist like cool um yeah because i think the uh, the, the city the state actually like purged the entire party right 
um, and basically reclassified it's, everybody from IND to no party affiliation. Yeah, there's uh, well, there's also a whole bunch of like hangover registrations because California oh, yeah. for a while has like has had like fifty very weird, mainly defunct parties, and had to come up with all sorts of weird like three letter codes for all of those parties. So oh, every I now remember, and then yeah. you'd see a party, you'd see a party that's like X Y Z on their voter, voter registration. You're like, I have no idea who that is. And like, I remember asking a couple of people, I was like, What is X Y Z? That's your registration. They're like, I have no idea. I was like, <laughs> Okay, well, cool, thanks. Maybe you want to go register no party. Uh, all right. Well, so let's uh, let's move into uh, to uh, things that we can do next week. Again, just to reiterate this from the top of the show if you or anyone you know is affected by the wildfires the red cross and the la fire department uh have updated information on their websites uh there are a number of shelters that you can seek uh stay safe make sure you've got access to your medication make sure that you've got access to n90 or p90 breathing masks if you're in the area of smoke you can pick those up at any any hardware store you can even pick them up at some targets and some walmarts they'll run you about like four to eight bucks per mask each mask, if you're out walking around, is going to last you like four to six hours. Uh, so keep that in mind. Like you, if this fire goes on for a week, you can't wear that same mask for a yeah, week. It will stop sure. being good for you. You have to swap that mask out once a day. This is especially important for people who have breathing problems, people who are current or former smokers like myself, like we, we done abused our lungs. It sucks. Yeah, uh, people who are children or the elderly, like those are people that are going to want masks. If you can't get a mask, uh, the next like cheapest thing you can do to sort of deal with the smoke, but it's not highly recommended, but it will help a little bit, is to wet a bandana and keep it over your mouth. Uh, it's not going to help for very long, and it's not really good for you. Um, hopefully, the smoke clears sooner rather than later. But be safe out there, um, and you know, look out for your neighbors. So, what on, else is on, going on in well, this? Yeah. On that note, relating to those masks, that's actually one of the things that's now being added to like the K Town for All outreach. Uh, you know, wish list when it comes to the like Amazon wish list and whatnot that uh, we're using to cr to source the donations that we then are able to distribute amongst our unhoused neighbors. Like, if you're living on the streets in a tent, you are incredibly vulnerable to this kind of smoke damage, and it will massively impact your life more than it will for people who are actually living in permanent shelters. So those N95 masks are going to be up on that list. Um, if they aren't up there right now, I'm going to make sure that they're up there before the end of the day. Uh, and if you want to go ahead and find that list and make a donation or, and help us with the outreach on that, that's fantastic. Uh, follow at K town for all on Twitter. And, uh, that link will be popping up, uh, over the next few weeks for sure. Um, yeah. So a couple of other quick things, like we mentioned earlier, stop LAPD spying coalition. It has their call to action for Tuesday morning against the, mm -hmm. Predictive policing practices that are known as PredPol. Uh, that's October 15th at 8.45 a.m. is when they're meeting. Press conference starts at 9 a.m. Outside LAPD headquarters in downtown L.A., 100 West 1st Street, 90012. Uh, as always, BLM is having their weekly vigil at 211 West Temple in front of the Hall of Justice. Uh, downtown from 4 to 6 p.m. Come out, participate. It's incredibly important. Uh, and this is, again, these kinds of actions are how we start to change the narrative and how we start to actually make things uh, happen. And uh, going back to what we were talking about, the evictions and whatnot, LA Tenants Union uh, is an incredible resource for that. And they are, of course, having their week of meetings coming up this next week. Uh, they've got the Hollywood local meeting happening from 7 to 9 on Monday the 14th. Uh, that's at 6500 Sunset Boulevard, 90028. 
Uh, then on Wednesday, the uh, LA Tenants Union's West Side Local is going to be happening from 6.30 to 8.30 at the Oakwood Rec Center, 767 California Avenue in Venice, 90291. Uh, the Mid-City Local is going to be meeting at the same day from 7 to 9. This is Wednesday the 16th at uh, 40... 4067 West Pico Boulevard, 90019. Uh, East Hollywood Local is also meeting the same night, 7 to 9 p.m., 5500 Hollywood Boulevard, 4th floor, Los Angeles, California, 90028. And, of course, the Vibe Local meets at the same time as Ground Game, basically, on October 17th, Thursday from 7 to 9 at 3303 Wilshire Boulevard on the 10th floor. That is at the UTLA building, 90010. And, of course... Ground Game meets every Thursday from 7.30 p.m. till around 9 p.m. at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks from the Wilshire Western stop, uh, or sorry, the Western Hollywood stop. I'm How am I forgetting the name of the <laughs> metro station that we meet at, or we meet next to? So, uh, yeah, come out, join us, and, uh, you know, get your voices heard. So, yeah. As always, if y'all have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Follow us on Twitter at groundgamela, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, on Instagram at groundgamela, and of course, like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live stream content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a bit over at knock.la. If you'd like to read the sources that we are citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, sorry, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Uh, yeah, that pretty much does it for me. Yeah, shout out to uh, Bob Blumenfeld staff who apparently uh, at least read our stuff at Knock. Maybe they don't listen, but who knows? Uh, but anyways, to everyone out there in the Valley especially, but all of L.A., uh, stay safe, and hopefully we make it through fire season uh, not completely yeah. fucked up. Uh, have yourselves a very, very uh, safe week. Wonderful. Thanks, y'all.
Thank you.